First, you must realize that you have no idea before you can know the idea. We scan across all the frequencies if we want to learn anything new. Let us begin. What has physics done for me lately? Furthermore, the equation E is equal we have now acquired a fateful power to alter and to destroy nature. That's like when you're in physics and you get a dream about saying, oh, this is a physics excursion. What is it all about? The whole of human history all falls in the dust of one stroke of the nail file. You can't really get to grips with evolution unless you realize uh, what an enormous amount of time. Our own planet is only a tiny part of the vast cosmic tapestry, a starry fabric of worlds yet untold. Good morning. You tuned into what can only be described as the best radio station on this blue dot we call Earth. It is, of course, for Triple Z, be it on your conventional wireless radio by tuning into the classic frequency of 102.1 FM, digital devices such as DAB and smart speaker listening via the Community Radio Plus app or streaming us live from our sensational website at 4ZZZ.org.au. And of course, you can always listen back to us or any 4ZZZ show for that matter using the ingenious on-demand feature also found at that URL. We also now have a weekly podcast of the show for your listening pleasure, a condensed version of the show without the music which my mum prefers. Just search on our show name, which is, of course, No Idea, spelt with a K, your weekly dose of science. And joining me today to speak all things science is one of my favourite science communicators. Good morning, Jay. Good morning, Max. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. That's awesome. Thank you for writing that script for the start of the show. Yes, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> we got an email from the station manager saying mm. that my intro that mm. I wrote for was this superior. show was really good. Yeah, yeah. really good. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> for those unfamiliar with the show, we like we generally start the show with some weird science, then we get into some marine science, and then my personal favourite, motor science. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, any science from the past week that we have that has piqued our interest. Mm. And we round out the show with some space news. We usually have the master here, but Gabe's mm. away. Gabe's away. So uh, lucky we're us. Free. So we're going to do a bit of this. <laughs> you want to kick us off, Jay? Why not? Why not, Max? All right. So. Do you remember when there was like a big fuss a while back about the idea of goats that could spin spider silk? Goats? Yeah. No. They were trying to genetically modify goats so that their milk would have silk in it. <laughs> right. Specifically, Silky smooth. Yeah. Specifically spider silk. Right. Basically because of these prized qualities that spider silk has. It's really tough and really flexible and the ultimate building material and the ultimate bulletproof vest material and all yes, that kind okay. of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, the magic substance. But how do you mass produce spider silk? You get a lot of spiders. Well, they're not very friendly. 
true. <laughs> and not just uh, not just to the researchers, but to each other. They right. have a tendency to, to be eat each other. to eat each other. Yeah, yes, okay. which gets in the way. Is that problematic? You think it's not healthy workplace behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> The yeah. workplace health and safety of this spider silk factory would not be so great. Right. So, scientists have been trying to figure out what other animals are a bit more friendly mm. and keen for that kind of work. Mm. Well, at the start of this month, researchers from Donghua University in Shanghai, mm. QS ranking of? Be pretty high. Be like 220. It's between 901 <laughs> and <go>. 950. <laughs> Well, they say they've managed to genetically modify silkworms to produce spider silk. Now, the silk that they've produced isn't quite as strong or stretchy as natural spider silk, but previous attempts to get silkworms to produce spider silk created blends of silk that were only 30 to 50% spider silk. So this is fully spider silk. Is it? Yeah. 100%? Yeah, which makes a big difference. And it's six times as tough as Kevlar. So, yeah, six times as tough as the stuff that Mm, stops bullets. Um, Part of what has helped make it so good is that the researchers genetically modified the silkworms using that CRISPR technology that all bioscientists know and love where you cut out a gene and you put a new one in. Yes. Um, But then they let those genetically modified silkworms breed, um, leading to some babies that had two copies of the modified gene and just sort of bred out the kinks, I guess, Mm. and produced pure silk. So the next step in this research will be confirming that the changes last several generations in silkworms, Mm. which obviously helps with the production of the silk. Otherwise, manufacturers of the stuff would need to be constantly genetically modifying new silkworms um, to jumpstart the process again. Mm. But the researchers hope that they can not only develop stronger and stretchier fibres with these genetically modified silkworms, but... They reckon they could even introduce artificial amino acids into mm. the spider silk protein to create something even better than the original stuff. And what is that? Well, just like spider spider silk too. <laughs> better Coming better to spider silk. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Very good. That's my little story. Thanks for that. What have you got, Max? Well, before I get started, okay, I, I would like to formally issue a big content warning. Okay. For my weird science this week. Is it gross again? Well, yeah. I just thought I'd put the content warning just because, you know. You're not going to tell us what the warning's for? <laughs> well, I'm giving p- uh, the listeners at home a chance or in their car a chance to tune out or turn the volume down okay. for the next few minutes. Okay. So we'll just wait a while. Okay. <laughs> it's good radio, isn't it? What are we discussing? Okay. Are we ready? Yes. This stuff's going to get pretty real. You ready? Okay. Okay. If the results from my weird science this week proved to be correct. Okay. Not one person would have switched off their radio or, t- or turned down the volume because as soon as I said that my weird science contains sensitive material, the immediate response is to simply keep listening. Ah. No matter what the outcome. It turns out humans are really bad at tuning out when it comes to something spicy. One researcher termed it the forbidden fruit syndrome. <laughs> and it is all to do with the issuing of trigger warnings. I see. Trigger warnings usually take the form of a verbal or written communication that generally precede potentially sensitive content. These notices attempt to flag disturbing content before rather than after. So readers, listeners or viewers can adequately prepare themselves or, if necessary, disengage for their own well-being. 
Although no formal analysis has been conducted to document the various forms of trigger warnings available, it is not too difficult to observe a plethora of different instances across the news and social media landscape, educational settings, or even, say, in art galleries. The bracketing of specific types of content may also include warnings about potential emotional reactions with statements like, this article contains details that some listeners may find distressing. Now, a recent meta-analysis of studies that have looked at the effectiveness of trigger warning protocols has found that these warnings only achieve one outcome. They reliably increase one's anticipation anxiety. The finding is supported by both subjective analysis, such as a rating scale, and the objective measurement using physiological markers of distress. Furthermore, this finding holds true across different trigger warning types, attesting to the robustness of the effect. In theory, this anticipation period should indicate that forewarned individuals are bracing themselves for a negative emotional experience. However, whatever bracing might occur during the anticipation period is apparently completely ineffectual. The small increase in negative emotions induced by trigger warnings actually serves no productive purpose whatsoever. Overall, the meta-analysis researchers found that the content warnings basically had zero effect. Content warnings, content notes, trigger warnings are essentially window dressing. However, they did conclude that trigger warnings do reliably induce a period of uncomfortable anticipation. Although many questions warrant further investigation, the main outtake from the study was that trigger warnings should never be considered as a mental health tool. And for those wanting to read more, the study is entitled A Meta-Analysis of the Efficacy of Trigger Warnings, Content Warnings and Content Notes. That's really fascinating. I want to talk about that for a bit. You go first for of it. all, first of all, you did get me with the Did you hear how nervous I was? <laughs> In anticipation. So I do get that anticipation, yeah. but I feel like that's because I don't know, there's a difference between just like content warning the following is going to be intense. Mm. And like if someone actually lays out, like, there's a depiction of X, Y, Z in this. Before they say the content warning? Or they say content warning because we're going to talk about this. Yeah. Mm. On one hand, I mute a lot of terms on Twitter that mm. I don't want to see, like transphobic stuff and all mm. that. Mm. But if I see a tweet that comes along that says, this has a word that you muted, I'm going to click on it. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so in that sense... A bit of bit and fruit. So, yeah, 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 totally useless. But uh, there have been times recently where I've seen stuff that says, like, this has like this particular subject matter in it. And I'm like, oh, I know I'm not good with that. Mm. So I won't mm. engage. Okay. So I would there argue it can be useful if it's like going to say, mm. I, I really find it annoying. Unf- like obviously work in media yeah, and we do a lot of stories that are like, oh, the following story contains, contains disturbing stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that doesn't really give much or like, yeah, the following could be distressing. Yeah, I know. It's a bit of a catch twenty two. Yeah, it? yeah. But uh, I definitely I definitely get how being like vague with it just mm. sort of makes you kinda wanna see, I guess, or not really. <laughs> but like yeah. yeah. It can be useful when there's like specific things that you're warning about. Mm. Sometimes I use do you know the website Does the Dog Die? No. It's a website where you can look up movies and it tells you, it has like a whole list of upsetting things and it can tell you. So sometimes if I'm watching a movie with friends, but I haven't seen the movie before, I'll check does the dog die just to make sure there's nothing like 
really, really intense or messed up that happens in it that I feel like I should let my friends right. know. Okay. Or take into consideration. But yeah. <laughs> Glad to hear that you do have a friend called Peter hmm. from the Marine degree at JCU from 1993. We, what I'm hearing from this, Max, is we yeah. didn't get the original friendly neighbourhood marine scientist called Peter. <laughs> yeah, so we'll we got ripped set, off with we'll the, the set set You tune into Four Triple Z. And the show is No Idea with me, Max, and Jay. And I think we should do part two of this. This week I had an AI voice of Gabe's topic, but Gabe sent in his own voice, his real voice, so we, I'll play that for another time. It was so special. That's right. <laughs> We've got Gabe here talking about the fruit fly serenade. Well, to the great sorrow of all, it's another week without myself this morning. Last time I gave you some of the first ever recordings of the vocalizations of horned up echidnas <laughs> communicating with each other during their breeding season. So I thought I'd keep the nature sex sounds coming your way with the serenades of a different animal this morning, which, yes, means there's some more scientifically dirty language in our future. You've been warned. That is the sound of a male singing to woo a female. Take a second to guess what it is. I guarantee you your guess will be wrong. That is the sound of the majestic and all-powerful fruit fly. If a male fruit fly took a break from terrorizing the slowly rotting bananas on your bench and buzzed up to land on your ear, you wouldn't hear a thing. If that male fruit fly then happened to take a fancy to your earlobe, you still wouldn't hear a thing, but it would be making noise. That male fruit fly would start extending and vibrating one wing at a time, performing a ballad of sorts. Just a ballad that's way too quiet for you to pick up unless you amplify it a couple thousand times and get this. Fruit flies are unlike some other types of insects. Male fruit flies can't force mating. That means their wing rubbing song is one of the few things that males can use to impress a female fruit fly, which means it's time for you to learn where fruit fly babies come from. If a male fruit fly spots a female he wants to get the attention of, he'll start the serenade. It begins with just the pulses from the full song you heard before, just these bits. These are what he uses to get her attention as he starts to chase her down. If she chooses to, the female might then slow down a bit. If they both stick with it, they'll keep that dance of singing and slowing down going for another 20 minutes or so. Over that time, the male will get through hundreds of what are called song bouts. When they get close together, the male has added to the pulses he sung from afar with a more tuneful bit of noise called the sign song. He'll flip between pulses, sign song, and that mix of the two until eventually the female slows down enough for them to mate. But the researchers behind these fruit fly sounds, based mainly out of Princeton, QS ranking of 17 max, they weren't just interested in listening to the fruit fly foreplay. They also used two deep learning-based motion capture tools and neural imaging to know exactly how the fruit flies were flying around each other in relation to each other, their exact positioning, and what was going on in their heads as they did. What they found was male fruit flies can't always sing. Their neural circuits are in a solo mode until they get close enough to a female fruit fly that seems to flick some kind of switch in their 
their brain and triggers the serenade mode. It means male fruit flies can reuse the same neural circuits from different modes, the solo mode and the serenade mode. And it's a big jump to go from fruit flies into humans, but these researchers are hoping that more work like this will help us understand how brains, including our own brains, are able to generate different patterns of behavior to different particular contexts that we find ourselves in. You're listening to No Idea on 4ZZZ, and this is the sound of a fruit fly serenade. You tune into 4ZZZ, and this show is No Idea, your weekly dose of science with me, Max. I'm joined by Jay today, no Gabe, and it's time for a bit of marine science from our friendly neighbourhood, marine masters of science, <laughs> Peter. And she's going to be talking about geoengineering and the reef. I've spoken a fair amount on here about my distrust for something called geoengineering and so today I just wanted to unpack that a little more and also talk about one project that I'm actually a little bit hopeful about. As your friendly neighbourhood marine scientist, I am well aware of the threats to our planet and our oceans, especially climate change and, you know, there's no doubt that it is catastrophic. So I completely understand our desire as a species to do what we've always done and build our way out of it. You know, it's sort of our pattern. We build solutions to our problems, usually in a way that makes us more comfortable. And it seemed like a pretty successful strategy until we zoomed out from just ourselves and saw that the planet's temperature had spiked and all the life was disappearing. So, really, all of our progress has had quite severe, unintended consequences. And one of the ways that has been put forward to tackle these consequences is a field called geoengineering, which is really exactly as it sounds the study and practice of engineering our own environment. It's not really a new or a novel idea. One of the things we've been doing for nearly 90 years now is called cloud seeding, which is a geoengineering project of sorts. Um, It changes the weather by adding small particles into water vapor that encourages cloud growth. It was initially created in the southern United States as a way to bring rain to drought-struck areas. But today, geoengineering is a growing field with its sights more firmly set on bailing us out of this massive problem we've gotten in, climate change. Usually, these projects fall into one of two categories. Solar geoengineering, which aims to reflect a small portion of solar energy back into space, and carbon geoengineering, which aims to remove carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases. But given that one of the projects in the first category is essentially a giant mirror in space and another is shooting a different chemical into the stratosphere, it has to be said that these are huge undertakings and they can be very hard to reverse if we can do that at all. Personally, I think my worry stems from two things. Number one, our innate hubris as the human race, and number two, our simultaneous nihilism. Because as far as I can see, there are two quite unfortunate outcomes to the implementation of this work globally. Number one, that it has unintended consequences that we simply cannot foresee or that we don't understand the full extent of that make climate change worse or even create a new problem that we have to deal with. Or number two, that people will just turn completely to engineering to fix our issues as a way of avoiding the reality of just doing what needs to be done and reducing our emissions. And to be completely clear, this is a sentiment that's shared by a large portion of the environmental and scientific community. But that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be researched or done regionally even. In fact, a lot of these projects actually give me quite a bit of hope. One in particular has me excited. 
because marine cloud brightening may just shield some areas of our reef this summer. That's right, a team from a collaboration of universities, CSIRO and the Australian Institute of Marine Science is currently researching whether cloud brightening may be able to reduce coral bleaching. So what is cloud brightening? Well, I mean, as you know, clouds can be different shades and colours, and this is partially due to the size and density of individual droplets. A cloud that's made out of many small droplets is brighter than one with fewer large droplets, which just sort of imagine in your head when you have the hose in the garden and you put your thumb over it. The more you put your thumb over it, the smaller the droplets, the more dense the screen, the more light is reflected. You can only make a rainbow when you put your thumb right on it. Similar idea, just on a much larger scale. And it turns out that the particles naturally scattered from seawater actually aren't that dense. So when clouds do form, they're darker. But if you shoot aerosolized seawater out of a cannon, then, yeah, then you get very dense clouds um, that are even brighter because they've got sea salt in them. We think so, anyway. Because even though much like regular cloud seeding, cloud brightening is not new, originally being put forward as a method of temperature control in 1990, no one has actually tested this theory before now. So I am excited. I'm excited to see what happens, because if this can even take a little bit of pressure off of the reef as we reduce our emissions, that would be fantastic. There's not saying that there's no downsides to this, but given its small scale, the scientists feel pretty confident that it's going to be a neutral, if not positive, benefit, so it should be fine and reversible, if anything. But we have to remember, no matter whether this is positive or not, these are not the solution. Geoengineering is a pair of fins that we've attached to our feet to help us tread water. The real solution is to rapidly reduce our emissions and to move to clean energy sources. Zero, one, two. And this is what they recovered using AI in the data set. Someone's working on this. I don't know what I'd do without it. You tune into Four Triple Z, and the show is No Idea with me, Max and Jay. Hello. No Gabe this week. No Gabe this week. No Easy this week. No Easy this week. No V this week. No V this week. <laughs> you <laughs> get the us. theme. That's right. Now you want to talk about Doctor Who? I do want to talk about Doctor Who, Max. So. Gabe hates it when I do this. So Gabe's not here right now, so <laughs> that's yeah, his problem. Yes. But it's my science show. Well, it's our science show, but it's my part on the science show, and I get to talk about you do. media, Yes. sci-fi. Mm. That's the sci in sci-fi. Well, I, fair enough, because I get to talk about motorsport. Exactly. And it doesn't really relate to <laughs> <laughs> no idea. We love yeah. to hijack this show. <laughs> yeah, we do. Okay, let's talk about Doctor Who. I'm going to absolutely turn this into a weekly segment as episodes start coming out. I'm going to be talking about it all the time. But for right now, obviously the lead up to the 60th anniversary specials and the new season, it's all pretty exciting. And recently, BBC did a concert for 60 years of Doctor Who where they played a whole bunch of really awesome tracks from across the 60 years of Doctor Who history. And then... They surprised everyone mm. by also playing the brand new Doctor Who theme and the 15th Doctor's 
Theme, which are two new tracks, mm. and they're exciting, and I want to talk about them. The Doctor Who theme has had many iterations yeah. over the years, yeah. changes with every Doctor. Um, I was just talking to Alexis outside, who mm. reminded me that the original Doctor Who theme was done on a theremin, which yes. is a really fun instrument that you should look up if you haven't seen. And the theremin was developed by a trans woman, so mm. basically we own... <laughs> we trans people collectively own Doctor Who, is what I'm trying to say. Yes, right, because it was an Australian composer, Ron Grainer, who mm-hmm. actually um, produced it mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Delia uh, Derbyshire. Mm-hmm. There you go. And Wendy Carlos, who right. um, created the theremin. Mm. And... And the new theme, it's pretty much the same as the old one. <laughs> but what I really love about it is it brings this new little piano moment into it, which is so cute, and I adore it. So I've isolated just that little bit that feels new and fresh and funky. And Max, if you could hit play on that, on, on the, the, on new, the new Doctor Who theme, yeah, when you get... So good to me. That piano, (laughs) delicious. You're liking that. It gets in there. It spices it up. It plays with it. Mm. Um, Really fun to me. I feel like this era of Doctor Who hopefully will bring lots of playfulness and, and a bit of a twist onto it. Obviously, we have our first openly queer actor playing the Doctor. So that would be like interesting when we have a return of Russell T Davies, who's a queer writer, to mm-hmm. the show as well. And he's had a checkered history with the show, hasn't he, Russell? Russell T Davies. Yeah. Well, he brought it back. He mm. brought it back. Mm. I've I've heard rumors that like yeah. uh, he said that like if the show was ever going to be cancelled, he'd like to give it one last shot. So yeah. I wonder if him coming back is because. Things the were things were shot. not doing great. <laughs> things were not going so well. But I don't know that for sure. Yeah, That's just right. what I've heard. <laughs> um, but speaking of the new Doctor, we also have his theme, mm. and it's really fun. But it's kind of it's kind of interesting to me. If you could give that a bit of a spin, Max. Sounds almost James Bond. Right. What's right. going on with that? Exactly. With the trumpets and stuff. Yeah, yeah it has brass. this. It has this very new sort of. I think yeah. like. James Bond, sort of like <laughs> spy vibe. And then also I think like kind of military. Yeah. Which which yeah. interests and concerns me a little bit because I, I do know that the um the specials are bringing back Unit and mm. Kate Lethbridge Stewart and that sort of thing. And I I prefer I prefer my Doctor Who without the military involved. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't really watch mm. Doctor Who um to be involved in the military <laughs> complex. So, I I uh, I appreciate unit as a as a plot device, but I hope that I really hope that I don't know. There are some eras of Doctor Who where the Doctor was like essentially a soldier, and they they like mm. leaned really heavily on like, wow, the Doctor's like a commander of armies, mm. and I just hope they don't bring that back because it's kind of bleh. doesn't doesn't work. Yeah. yeah, and I think people are like excited. For this idea of like, because I was brought up with the unit and all that sort of mm, stuff back in the day. So, because yeah. I, I, I love the third Doctor mm. working with like the Brigadier and all that. That's yeah, really yeah. fun. Yeah, That's yeah, cute. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, I think in recent years it's been like a bit weird where they've sort of like yeah really brought that. It's a bit 
got too serious, did it? Yeah, like army so, vibe, and it's like. To be fair, well, I haven't been watching a lot of the new <laughs> stuff, so I don't know yeah, necessarily what you're talking about. Yeah, so, yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. yeah, I just feel like I don't know. Some people are very excited about the um, possibility of this being like a very progressive era of Doctor Who, and I just feel like Doctor Who can be painfully neoliberal at times, and I just hope that it's not going to be weird like that. But the theme is good. Mm. The theme's exciting. It's working for you. And the new Doctor Who, like the overall theme, yeah. really fun, yeah. really enjoying it. So that's my little moment about Doctor Who for this week. That's right. Well, fun fact, um, mm. when I was trying to get my son to play the piano, I got the sheet music for the Doctor Who theme. True. Just so he could learn to play that. Yes. So, and I was walking past uh, QPAC the other mm. day, and the, um, the there was a, a kid... Playing on one, there's a piano there in that yeah, foyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you used to be able to drive, but you don't drive there anymore. Yeah. And uh, underneath QPAC, and the uh, the kid was playing the Star Wars theme on the yeah, piano. Oh, nice. So he must have got the sheet music for Star Wars to get him into the whole playing the piano stuff. That's very cool. Yeah. I, For a brief time, me and my sibling were learning the 11th Doctor's theme on violin. Right, okay. Yes, yeah, so we are. played that for a little bit, but <laughs> not very well. <laughs> well, we were doing it, we were doing it like in classes, like we were yeah. learning violin and there are like several parts to it. Yeah. So we got like the lame parts where we were lame essentially parts. just like doing like one long yeah. note while the yeah. teacher was doing yeah, yeah. all the fun well, bits. The intricate. But you know, yeah, there okay. we go. But we have to play the intro. Are you ready for this, Jay? <laughs> Let's do it. You're tuned into 4 Z, and the show is No Idea <laughs> with me, Max, and Jay. Okay, it's time for the best part of the show. Loosely defined as science, yeah, you already know. Everybody listens to 4 Z just to hear us talking about what Butters just did. Subscriptions just keep rolling like the tires on a car. But something tells me that our science careers won't go far. But unlike an engine, I won't keep you in suspension. We're all here to hear him talk, so let's give him attention. You're not ready for when he starts rapping. Gonna hand the mic to Max, and I'm not talking Van Staffen. Lights out and away we go. Jay, do you know many songs that has the term Andalusia? No, I don't. <laughs> I'm assuming one, and it's the one before that just played. It's right. There we go. By Pixies. And I mentioned this because Sail GP happened off the coast of Andalusia on the weekend on the Atlantic Ocean. And so that's in Spain for those playing at home. Mm-hmm. For those unfamiliar with Sail GP, the category uses a new class of sailboat called F. 50s, so they are 50-foot catamarans that are, are able to lift out of the water using hydrofoils. They can reach speeds up to 100 kilometres per hour. Ten countries compete in now the fourth season. For the record, Australia has won the previous three seasons, so we have a big a target on our back. Each regatta consists of five fleet races where all ten boats compete. Then the top three scoring teams compete in the sixth and final race to see who wins the regatta. Day one in Spain saw some good breeze and Spain won the first race. Then France won race two and then Australia won race three. So that's Saturday out of the way. Day two, Sunday, saw Denmark win the remaining fleet races. So that's four and five. So Denmark were looking pretty good. The winds were a bit fluky, a bit light on. Uh, the final race was between Australia, of course, Denmark, and the USA. And as I said, the Weezer, uh, the, they couldn't stay on the foils necessarily. So the US had a very poor start in the final race. 
and US could only watch as Australia and Denmark sailed away on their foils, only to watch Australia and Denmark fall off the foils because they fell into a big hole oh. of no wind. Oh. USA quickly ta- jibed and got the hell out of there. <laughs> they weren't going to follow, and they were managed to stay on their foils. So this was basically it, game over, because whoever stays on their foils um, makes so much distance compared to when the two um, hulls are in the, in the water. So USA went on to win it. Uh, Denmark came second and Australia third. But Australia still wins. <laughs> still at the top of the standings for the fourth season after five regattas. Uh, we lead by seven points from Denmark. There's still an eight sail GP regattas to go. And the next one will be in Dubai on December 9 and 10. Interesting. MotoGP. These Wahoo. are the motorbikes. It also happened on the weekend. This time it was in Indonesia. Aussie Jack Miller finished seventh in Sunday's feature race. So a pretty good result that he finished in the top ten. Oh, here we go. We've got Lord Hippie third. Andalusia, I don't know how to spell that, but it's also on Spanish bombs by The Clash. Oh, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) We've started something now. Okay, F1. It happening this weekend. Mm-hmm. We'll see the return of Aussie Daniel Ricciardo back from injury, driving for Alpha Tori. Daniel is arguably the second most popular F1 driver when it comes to racing in the US, second only to Lewis Hamilton. His car will have a few uh, new upgrades, so expecting a good result for Daniel. And here I'm hoping a good result for the other Australian on the grid, Oscar Piastri, maybe even, if I dare to dream, Jay, if I dare to dream, <laughs> an Aussie double podium. There we at go. At the Circuit of the Americas, also known as Coda. And finally, the Valtteri Bottas and Roman... Sorry, e- sorry. Let's go back a bit. Yeah. Is it called Coda because yeah. it's Circuit, Circuit of Da Americas? Oh, Coda. Sorry, yeah, I spelled it wrong. Is it T? <laughs> <laughs> I'm an idiot. Okay, Coda, yeah. Circuit of Da Americas. (laughs) (laughs) Max has completely lost it. (laughs) The Valtteri Bottas and Roman Grosjean report. Valtteri last weekend was seen riding his bicycle. He competed in... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I really, I really love... I really love this report. Especially when it's just like... You're seen on a bike again, guys. (laughs) Max following around with his little camera, like... He competed in the Belgium Waffle Ride, or BWR, Kansas Cycling Challenge, alongside his Aussie partner, Tiffany Cromwell. He tweeted, The 132 kilometer of challenging winds and surface. The course was fun, and we had a great day out riding together with Tiffany Cromwell. I finished second overall, and first in his age category. He's 34, so I worked that out. And Tiffany took the win in the women's race. Thanks nice. for all the support again here in Lawrence, and thanks, Tiff, for dragging me at times. She's a professional cyclist, FYI. He also posted, excited to bring gravel event to Australia with Tour Down Under. So keep a lookout for that event, which will happen on January 20 next year. Meanwhile, Roman Grosjean has been test driving Lamborghini's new hypercar called the SC63. If all goes to plan for next year, the Phoenix will have the chance to race in the world's most prestigious endurance competitions, such as the 24 Hours of Le Mans 
and the 24 hours of Daytona. So there you go. You'll be driving the SC63. Do we still keep Roman Grosjean on the report for next year, do you think? Yeah. Okay. Done. Jay says yes. <laughs> I love I love randomly having updates on the social media and personal <laughs> lives of people <laughs> that I don't know. Don't follow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you tune into Four Triple Z and the show is No Idea with me, Max. And Jay, no gay, no V, no easy. <laughs> <laughs> But we're lucky because we do have some pre-records that we've played before and we'll play again. It will be a rebroadcast of a story you did, Jay, with your friend V. Lovely V, yes. And it was called, I've got here the title as Stone Age Venice. Do you I remember this? I don't remember anything about this. No, no, Nothing no at all. No context whatsoever. No trigger no. warnings. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go into it. would probably be embarrassing just because... Me. <laughs> probably be fun. Let's do it. Let's do it. V, you and I have been talking a lot about Doctor Who recently. Well, we've been talking about a very particular aspect of Doctor Who recently. Anyway, so in all of that talking about Doctor Who, I decided to go back and watch a few episodes. You mean all the 12th Doctor's ones? No. Okay, in fact, I wanted to tell you something that I thought of while watching the Pompeii episode with David Tennant. Yeah, you mean the one where the 12th Doctor plays one of the characters. Anyway, so you and I have been talking about Doctor Who a lot and it made me watch the Pompeii episode, which made me think about how much we just don't know about history. There are so many secrets that are lost to time. Just like Pompeii, we'll never get to know exactly what went down on that day, or on any of the days where great civilizations crumbled. It's kind of interesting you say that, Jay, because I was just about to tell you about a paper I read in the journal Science Advances about what people call China's Venice of the Stone Age. Okay, I'm interested already. Go on. So, the paper is the brainchild of a group of scientists hailing from China, the US, and Austria. Before I get into the study itself, though, we'll take you through a bit of the background on the civilization. Liangzhu existed approximately 5,000 years ago. For context, that places it around the same era as ancient Egypt, and two to 3,000 years older than ancient Rome and Greece. It's considered by some to be one of the most technologically advanced Neolithic civilizations in human history, with a major capital city and palaces surrounded by huge inner and outer walls. It also rested on a system of connected waterways, composed of navigable canals and water reservoirs. In 2019, UNESCO designated it as a World Heritage Site. But what you were saying before about ancient civilizations like these is totally right. It's often difficult to discern what exactly brought about their demise. So, before this particular study was conducted, did archaeologists have any theories as to what might be the answer behind the collapse? Absolutely. So, there have been a number of theories floating around, ranging from climactic ones such as flooding, drought, or extreme weather events, to socio-political ones like military conflict or changes in the social structure. So, this particular study happens to lend further support to the flood theory, which is the most popular one so far. What makes the flood theory the most popular? Great question. On material from the Liangzhu period, researchers tended to find a thin layer of silt. The silt seemed to come from flood deposits from either a river or the ocean. Archaeologists have toyed with theories like the river flooding or tsunamis caused by coastal typhoons. I love the idea of a bunch of researchers looking at the same thing from different angles and slowly zeroing in on an answer. How did these guys do it? 
In this case, the researchers analysed rock samples from a cave nearby and ran them through with a radiocarbon dating analysis to find out how old they were. This dating technique can narrow down an answer within an approximately 60-year window, which is phenomenal when we're talking about events thousands of years in the past. Through analysing the rock samples, the researchers found out not only their age, but mineral evidence of an extended period of extraordinarily high rain. Using this evidence, the researchers proposed that it was massive monsoon rains, followed by freshwater river flooding, that forced Liangzhu's citizens to flee, rather than marine flooding caused by coastal typhoons. I actually feel kind of sad now, thinking about all those people running to escape from the destruction of their homes. Watching it happen in that Pompeii episode was sad enough, and that's totally fictional. It won't always be fiction, Jay. Modelling done by the non-profit organisation Climate Central shows that by 2100, if we continue with business as usual and reach a 3.5 degree rise, we would lose huge chunks of suburbs like Stones Corner, South Brisbane, Fig Tree Pocket, New Farm, or Fairfield. It really isn't my intention to sound doomerist, but these are really big changes that we're seeing. Much like Liangzhu, Brisbane and countless other places around the world would see the displacement of huge numbers of people. And of course, that displacement would disproportionately affect those disenfranchised by things like border policies or poverty. Luckily, we don't need a time machine to know what's coming for us, and that means we can put pressure on the people in our society as it stands to make changes towards a better future and stop us from becoming the next civilization's tragic Doctor Who episode. I mean, not that I would complain about being a Doctor Who episode. Depending on who the Doctor is, of course. You tune into Four Triple Z, and the show is No Idea with me, Max, and Jay, and Jay. When we put the shout out to subscribe, mm. sure enough, just as station manager says, the more you mention <laughs> it, the more it comes true. Wahoo! And we had Richard from Footscray uh, subscribe. So that's great. Thank you, Richard. And I just want to say, yeah. I just want to say that 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 subscription came in mm. directly after I was talking about Doctor Who. Right. So, so I'm just saying, using scientific methods m- here. The magic dust is Doctor Who. Yeah, and talking I talking about that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the more we talk about it, the more people will subscribe. <laughs> and if you want to subscribe, just go to the, our website at four zzz dot org dot au forward slash Support. You should subscribe right now and help me prove my point. That's right. Or you can ring downstairs. <laughs> Hopefully someone's down there at 7 3252 That's 7 And if you want to text in stuff to us and we will read it, and you can do that on 0420-626-73 and another three. <laughs> and I just want to give a shout out. To the guy driving the candy apple red Kia Stinger. I was driving out to Gatton the other day <laughs> on the Warrego Highway. Okay. And this is the car I would like. If I had some money, I'd actually upgrade to a yeah. Kia Stinger. Yeah. Unfortunately, they're not making them anymore. They stopped making oh, them. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. They start, stopped in March. So uh, stocks are drying up. So they're probably worth a bit now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I got ever closer to it, and I, I, I just admiring its rear end. It's uh-huh. got this with the four exhausts and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I think something's not quite right because it had a big monitor inside the car, and it right. had a place a placeholder on the rear windscreen for a, a, a telephone aerial. 
Okay. And I'm going, this is a bit unusual. And oh. sure enough, it was an unmarked police car. Ah. <laughs> I had caught up to. So, <laughs> so then you backed off very quickly. So, yeah, that, that was interesting. I thought you were going to tell us that mm. it had a big. This this vehicle plays four triple Z sticker on it or something that like that. Good, that would have been really yeah. good. Oh well. Way better than it being a cop car. <laughs> <laughs> I survive another day. Um, what are we going to do? A bit of uh, space news to finish off the show. Sounds great. No idea. Space news. You know, Max. Okay. What do you want? No, no, hold on. We can't interrupt this. And the reason I play that uh-huh. is because ingenuity. In breaking news, yes, Mars Mini Chopper has completed its 61st flight. Oh, we're getting ever closer, Max. Which means Izzy has now won the unofficial, no idea, potential number of flights <laughs> on Mars. Good for that little guy. Izzy's prediction was 69 flights and it beats... <laughs> My now very conservative <laughs> 50 flights. And that's it. I'm not going to do space news ever again. <laughs> <laughs> the embarrassment is too much. She can't take the defeat. Anyway, what would you like to say before I shut down the space news? <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing. Ingenuity. What a little guy. I yeah. think what was my bet was like 40 or something. Yeah, exactly. And then you were like 50 and everyone was like, oh, Max, we'll never get that. to 50. Yeah. And then uh, Izzy just, just off the bat used her favourite number, 69, and sure enough, sure enough. Eddie will probably get to 69. Maybe Ingenuity is inspired by us, like because we believe in it. That's right. Do you think? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think that because we believe in Ingenuity. We do the science show, but we also believe in that. Yeah. Ingenuity <laughs> is like, yeah, for you guys, I'll Feeding make it. Feeding off our energy, yeah. our positive vibes. Yes. Aliens, a team of researchers from Carnegie Institute of Science in D.C., has developed a new method based on artificial intelligence that is capable of detecting subtle differences in molecular patterns that indicate biological signals, even in samples hundreds of millions of years old. The Mm. mechanism offers results with 90% accuracy. In the future, they envisage this AI system could be embedded into sensors on robotic space explorers, including landers and rovers on the moon and Mars, as well as within spacecraft circling potentially habitable worlds like Europa. This research is described in a paper published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And finally, Starliner. The first crewed test flight of Starliner has been pushed back an additional month to no earlier than mid-April next year. NASA officials said in a statement last Thursday, no reason was given for the change. The target date for the first operational flight of the Boeing spacecraft has also been delayed to early 2025, agency officials added. NASA picked Boeing and SpaceX in September 2014 to provide astronaut flights to and from the ISS giving each company multi-billion dollar contracts. Since November 2020, SpaceX has flown seven successful crewed flights to the ISS, with another seven contracted by NASA 
Meanwhile, Starliner has yet has launched just twice, but has yet to launch with anyone on board. So that is it. Space is hard. Space is, space is notoriously difficult. Notoriously difficult, yeah. And Blue Origin's finding that as well. So hopefully they'll get their new Shepard back to suborbital flights now that they've uh, closed out the um, investigation, which is one of the nozzle cones um, just basically melted. You tune into Four Triple Z, and the show is no idea, but not for much longer. <laughs> I'm Max. I'm joined by Jay. Hello. And I want to thank you, Jay, for your three stories this week. Yeah, that's, that's, I know. I'm so good. It's stoked. ridiculous. <laughs> so if you want to listen back, you can. You can listen to Jay talking about spiderweb being made by silkworms. Yeah. Doctor Who themes. Yes. And Venice. Venice. Stone Age Venice in China. Which you did with V. Yes. Thank you to V. Nothing from Izzy this week, but we did get something from Gabe. He spoke about fruit flies and their serenade. (laughs) And Peter, thank you for your Geo Reef study. That was fun. Thank you, Max, for your murder sport and for your science news and for your weird science on content warnings. And again, we have to congratulate Izzy on her prediction of the number of flights on Mars which is totally unbelievable, but <laughs> it is a thing. And we'll speak to you next week. See ya. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. science. science.